Upon marking number 23, please uh, open your Bible to Acts chapter 9, and we will be turning to that chapter and making use of a section of it here in just a moment as we study about a woman named Dorcas. Again, as I would echo the statements made earlier, it's good that each of us have been given the opportunity to be at a place like this this evening. So many things that the world presents us we could choose to do otherwise, but may we each appreciate the blessing that's ours to select, to choose to come to a place, to honor the God of heaven, to seek to do His will, to worship Him in spirit and in truth, and to not only magnify His name, but to be benefited ourselves as a result of it. You may have already noticed that we're going to reflect a bit tonight on a woman named Dorcas. And John just read from Acts chapter 9, and it will be primarily that passage that we'll consider in some detail this evening. This opening slide will be one that is primarily an introduction. And given the title, I thought it would be fair to at least comment on the place of it. Bearing fruit is something that you and I in the physical realm know a great deal about. People plant a garden, and they each, each sometimes appreciate flowers that bring forth, of course, in a, in a respective way. But the Bible has much to say about you and I as those who also bear fruit. In Romans 7 verse 4, Paul, writing to the church in Rome, said, You are married to Christ. Why? That you may bring forth fruit unto God. You and I are married spiritually. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom, and you and I as the church are His bride. And as we are married to Him, the purpose, the means for that is that we would bring forth fruit unto God. Jesus said in John 15, 8, that without me you can do nothing. And He says, it's desire of God that you bring forth much fruit unto Him. One of the most familiar passages in Galatians 5 goes by a name that is very familiar to us. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Meaning that as those things are evidenced in your life and mine, we will bring forth the fruit that would be pleasing unto our Heavenly Father. I say all of that to say that that general idea is certainly easy enough to understand. But what about the practical application of it? What may I do to bring forth the fruit that would please God? What may you do? Well, why don't we look at a woman named Dorcas? What did she do? As you and I study her life, I suppose we will easily find principles that can certainly help us in bringing forth the fruit that the Word of God speaks about. To do that, let's consider the context. That means, of course, that let's reflect upon the passage itself. And in so doing, we will have a proper appreciation of the surroundings that go into it and be ready to extract some lessons for you and for me as well. In Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse number 32, it reads as follows. And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he rose immediately. And all that dwelt at Lydda and Saron saw him and turned to the Lord. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which by interpretation is called Dorcas. This woman was full of good deeds, I'm sorry, good works and alms deeds, which she did. And it came to pass in those days 
that she was sick and died. Whom, when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And for as much as Lydda was nigh to Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring him that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. When he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed, and turning him to the body said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and lifted her up, and when he had called the saints and widows, presented her alive. And it was known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And it came to pass that he tarried many days in Joppa with one Simon, a tanner. That reading then through the end of the chapter brings before us some of these ideas that will prepare us as we come in a moment to study about Dorcas. First of all, would you notice Peter is a primary figure in the text. And by that I mean he is one of the central figures, obviously, but you'll notice what he does. He didn't merely stay in Jerusalem. Isn't it true? Peter was an apostle. Isn't it true then that he had a primary role of leadership in regard to the message of the gospel that emanated at Jerusalem? That may be so. But notice he traveled to these other places, including Lydda. And in so doing, we learn a rather valiant lesson. I thought a map might be of at least some help, and so here is one. You'll notice at the end of that arrow that is on the right-hand end is the city of Jerusalem. And you'll notice that Lydda is about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. And so you'll appreciate immediately that as the gospel had already advanced and notably done so into regions like that, that will be very useful because of the disciples that are mentioned there. We'll return to that map in just a moment, but let's go back to the previous slide at least for now. When Peter came to this area, verse number 32, again, he arrived at Lydda, and you and I just noted it was about 25 miles from Jerusalem. In verse number 33, he encountered there a man named Aeneas. This man was paralyzed and had been so for eight years. Isn't it rather interesting that we notice immediately what Peter said to him? Aeneas, Jesus Christ, maketh thee whole. The only means and mechanism whereby a man such as this could be made whole relied upon the great miraculous capability of that day and time through Jesus Christ and His authority. You and I know there was some degree of medicine and the knowledge thereof in that ancient day. But it seems as though without doubt something often utilized was the great working of miracles that could bring attention of individuals to a power far greater than mankind, that there was a God in heaven able and capable of working these things. Later on in Hebrews chapter 2, the purpose of the miracles was to confirm the Word. And that confirmation is found here powerfully as Aeneas was raised from that paralytic state. You may notice verse number 34 closes with these four words. And he arose immediately. Might you and I not read past adverbs like immediately too quickly? 
You can well imagine that here as Peter made this statement, it wasn't as if a week passed or even a day. This man that was known to be paralyzed was instantly able to walk, and that garnered a great deal of attention. In fact, you may notice in verse number 35, And all that dwelt at Lydda, please note the word all, and Saron saw him, and what did they do? They turned to the Lord. The miracle accomplished the purpose for which Peter had been equipped to be able to do it. Miracles weren't done merely to make a name for the person who was doing it. It was to attract the attention and lead individuals to Jesus Christ. Here you'll notice that all that dwelt at Lydda and Saron turned to the Lord upon seeing this paralyzed man that was now made whole. What an interesting idea. And back to the slide. What great success is highlighted for the kingdom. Might you and I then appreciate then that in that day wherein miracles were able to be worked, they didn't yet have the completed Word of God. And for that reason, it was a thoroughfare of those miracles that frequently was the key element in drawing individuals to the nature of the truth from heaven. Our saga continues onward. And so you'll notice on the next slide, we have quick mention of another city, not Lydda this time. It says in verse 36, There was at Joppa a certain disciple. Perhaps some might wonder, do we have a complete change in consideration in that this is a whole new consideration? Well, they are linked together beautifully. Let's develop it like this. Back to that map. Let's identify where Joppa was. We've already highlighted Lydda, about 25 miles northwest of Jerusalem. Please notice the other arrow also now gives us information about the journey from Lydda on to Joppa. It's about 12 additional miles, again, northwest. That easily thus means it was about a 40-mile journey from Jerusalem all the way to Joppa. But you may immediately observe where Joppa was located. It was a seaport town. It was a coastal city. That will be a very important observation before we're done. It is with that in mind. Let's go back to the previous slide again. This coastal city known as Joppa, the text now quickly tells us there was a disciple there, a woman, a woman named Tabitha, otherwise called Dorcas. I've asked you to appreciate on the slide an interesting point of observation about Joppa. We are about to see something fantastic in the next chapter, at least in the book of Acts. It was from Joppa that you may recall Cornelius sent to acquire men who would come and preach to him the marvelous message of Jesus Christ. And Cornelius was the first Gentile convert. Isn't it interesting that here Peter went from Joppa to the Gentiles? And in the Old Testament, it was at Joppa that Jonah fled from the Gentiles. Isn't that ironic? When Jonah, you see, was first told by God to go and preach to Nineveh, which was, of course, a Gentile city, you may recall he went to Joppa and boarded a vessel bound for Tarshish, as far away from Nineveh as he could imagine traveling. A bit interesting that Peter went from there to the Gentiles, but Jonah fled from the Gentiles from that same city. 
As I mentioned, as you reflect upon Joppa, you may notice about the disciple who occupies our discussion, Tabitha. I would ask you to notice, the word Tabitha is an Aramaic word. And interestingly enough, Dorcas, though that is a Greek word, both of them mean the same thing in those original languages. They have reference to a gazelle, which as far as I can tell, in that ancient day was a term of endearment. It was a term that highlighted the, the beauty, the loveliness, the gracefulness of that animal. And so I suppose they would name their girls or their, their baby girls after such, such beauty. But whether it be the Greek word or the Aramaic one, that's what those two words mean. Let's go even further. What else do we learn about this, this disciple? The text leaves us not to doubt in verse number 36. This woman was full of good works. Might we all take note, not that she in a passing way was given some interest in them, but she was full of them. It occupied the primary matter touching what she was known for. But sadly, in verse 37, it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died. This disciple, this, this woman named Tabitha, named Dorcas, she became sick and she died. You'll notice they washed her body, they prepared it just as was wont to be done in that day, and they laid that corpse in an upper chamber. And then, verse number 38, those disciples understanding that Joppa was not that far from Lydda, and they knew Peter was at Lydda. Word had traveled, and that information was well appreciated. They sent two disciples, two men to him, urging him to come at once, to come without delay. Verse number 38. Verse number 39, Peter came. The text informs us he arose and went with them. And when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber. And he observed all the widows that were, shall we say, exhibiting the clothing that Dorcas had made. And they were also weeping. And it is at that point that verse 40 says, Peter put them all out. And here he was in that chamber, in that location wherein was the body of Dorcas. But you'll notice that he kneeled down in verse 40 and he prayed. And then something else took place. He made a statement consisting of two words, Tabitha, arise. And interestingly, she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. This body that was lifeless just a few moments earlier had now, in fact, been reinfused with life from the great power of the God of heaven working through Peter. And interestingly, verse 41 says, He gave her his hand, lifted her up, and then he called the saints and the widows and presented her alive. Now you'll notice on that slide, this was a very notable miracle. Upon some reflection of it, as far as I'm able to tell, the last statement on this slide is accurate. Namely, this was quite notable in that it was the first recorded instance of an apostle raising someone from the dead. Now, Jesus had done that several times. Lazarus, the widow of Nain, Jairus' daughter. But you'll notice, as far as I'm able to tell, this was the first occasion when, in fact, an apostle raised someone from the dead like this. Now, later there will be others. But you can well imagine 
And so it was in verses 42 and 43 that this amazing statement is made. And it was known throughout all Joppa. Is it surprising to us that word like that would spread like wildfire? Here was a man that came to our city and this person that was known to be dead. And he raised her to life. No wonder it says, many believed in the Lord. Verse number 42. One more time, you and I can appreciate the place of miracles in that first century era and the opportunity it presented to appeal to individuals' observations and direct them to Jesus. May I say that having at least rehearsed the record, what about some lessons from that that can be helpful to you and to me? The first lesson I've just entitled, A Disciple. Among the things that you and I know about Dorcas, isn't it safe to say that perhaps the first thing that comes to our mind, and the first thing that's often mentioned here, is the fact she was a disciple. Let's develop it like this. It's amazing. The church, quite frankly, was still in its infancy at this time. Acts chapter 2 had been the beginning of the church, and we are now but seven chapters into that movement. We don't know exactly how many years it has been, but the fact still remains the church was relatively young at this time, a few years old at most. And yet, did you notice, although that church had begun at Jerusalem, it had spread to Lydda, Disciples now were found in Joppa. The church had explosively grown. It hadn't remained just in Jerusalem. It had spread northward and southward, eastward and westward. And you'll notice even in the seaport town of Joppa, there was a disciple there because there was a church there. The church of our Lord is where you find disciples. They aren't found anywhere else. Because doesn't it say in Acts 2.47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. And in Acts eleven twenty six, it says, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. And so disciples and Christians, one and the same. And lovingly, we of course appreciate them existent at Joppa. There are other verses that even highlight that growth more dramatically. In Colossians 1.23, Paul was able truthfully to write somewhat remarkably about the following statement. Every creature under heaven has been exposed to the truth of the gospel. Every creature under heaven? As those individuals took the gospel, living it out day by day, they touched the lives of those whom they knew. They touched the lives of their acquaintances. And as you and I have already read tonight, Many were brought to the Lord through those contacts. Notice near the bottom of that slide, that might also be all the more interesting when you reflect on the fact. How many disciples' names in Joppa do we know? Dorcas was a woman. What about the men laboring there? They, after all, would have been the leaders as far as the services of the church, you would suppose, surely. Sure, there was at least one man in the congregation, and yet it's Dorcas that's the one that occupies their attention. Shouldn't we at least conclude this? Women, of course, have almost from the very beginning occupied a special role in the work of God. There are things a woman can do better than a man. 
But certainly you and I realize that God has equipped a woman with certain talents and capabilities, and often rather skilled in ways that certainly is not true by and large of men. Now, as you and I develop that, we notice a number of verses that I've asked you to consider. In Galatians 4.4, wasn't it true there that this statement is made? Speaking of Jesus Christ, we appreciate that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law. Made of a woman. In Luke chapter 7, we read, of course, about the Lord and some of His disciples, and they, of course, were women who ministered to Him, who in fact sought after to take care of the needs of His life and those of some of the apostles. In John chapter 4, verse 1, Jesus, of course, met with that Samaritan woman at the well and conversed with her. She found that surprising. She found it rather shocking. But the Lord did it, understanding the value of her soul. Maybe it is in light of all that. We could certainly recollect and close that slide like this. 1 Corinthians 11, 11 points out a mutual dependency that is a significance attached to both the male and the female. And, of course, those points lead us to a few, a few additional ones. That although there is this equality in terms of salvation, the same plan of salvation that a man has to obey is also what God demands of a woman. But those final points are certainly a part of the New Testament record as well. Though there is that beautiful equality, in so many ways, the God of heaven has made decree that there's a distinction in roles and there are things which God doesn't permit a woman to do. And the leadership of the services, the assemblies, if you please. In 1 Timothy 2.11, there it is pointed out, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. And as that this sentiment was echoed in 1 Corinthians 14, you and I notice we can perhaps close that point and say it like this. Although Tabitha, Dorcas, was a woman, she labored as a faithful disciple in the context in which she was able to do it in the ancient city of Joppa. The Bible gives no reflection whatsoever that she behaved in an ungodly way, but rather as a notable disciple laboring in Joppa. But that point almost immediately begs another one. I've labeled it number two. Verse number 37 says, It came to pass in those days that she, that's Tabitha, was sick and she died. Sickness and death. You can easily appreciate that this faithful person, this individual who had touched the lives of so many, she too became ill. She also, in fact, passed from the scenes of this life. Almost immediately, doesn't that highlight and point out something? And I suppose sometimes it rests upon our heart. Given these individuals and some who are rather unfaithful, and quite frankly, they have little interest, it would seem, in the things of truth, and yet they seem so healthy. They seem as if they don't have the health troubles that perhaps you or I do when we're trying to serve the Lord. Many a debate has been held in which that is the primary assertion 
How can there be a loving and compassionate God if He permits these people who love Him so to suffer? Does that seem fair? Does it seem just? Does it seem equitable? And as I mentioned, many have used that as the critical element in asserting this God you claim to serve. I don't think He exists. Now you and I would give our life in deference to Jesus Christ. We love Him that much. First Peter 1 highlights the fact that though we haven't seen Him, we love Him because we have the fullest of assurances that He did live, He was the Son of God, and He gave His life in sinless perfection that our sins might be forgiven. There is a God in heaven, and human suffering does not in any way change that fact. Perhaps that's a lesson for another time. Many things the Bible has to say about that suffering. But perhaps for the moment, can we not just say it like this? God lets us know it's going to happen. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And didn't Jesus say, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Earlier in that same list of Beatitudes, Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I suppose that is a rather great amount of challenge. Blessed are those that cry. Blessed are those that are sad. Blessed are those that are distraught. And yet the Lord pronounced a blessing, a degree of contentment, if you please, connected to those that mourn. With that in mind, look at the following things on that slide. Here an ancient Christian woman who had done much for the cause of Christ, she became sick. We do not know how old a person she was, but we do appreciate the following. We know that widows had gathered together and they were greatly moved by what she had done. But she had died. Dorcas had died. On that slide, you might notice, it somewhat brings us to note that second to the last point. Given that that suffering and that difficulty shall be our lot, the far greater point for us is to make sure we always approach those situations with dignity, with godliness, with an appreciation of His trustworthiness and assurance upon our heart. Because if we do that, we shall in grace attack those points and handle it in a way that will dignify and honor the cause of Christ. Can't we remember Paul and his thorn in the flesh? Here was a faithful disciple and he had prayed earnestly three times that that might be removed. Three times. And maybe it was that Paul had a tremendous selfless idea in mind. God, if you'll take this thorn in the flesh from me, I can do more for your kingdom. I will even be a stronger and more equipped servant. And yet in the infinite wisdom of God, he said, No, it is your lot to bear that thorn in the flesh. But I tell you what. My grace will be sufficient for you. And in your weakness, you will in fact highlight the strength available for me. Sometimes today, that's still 
the time when you and I can be the strongest in terms of presenting the blessing of Jesus to others. Because they know in those moments it isn't due to us. It's due to the one whom we serve. Let's close our slide then like this. Though Dorcas approached this moment in death, nothing in the Bible is said about her acting foolishly when she was about to die. Nothing is said about her acting in this rather unbecoming fashion. The text just says that she died. Maybe all of that leads us to the major lesson of our study time tonight. And it's what I use as the title of the lesson, Dorcas's Fruitful Life. Because after all, I know you and I were awaiting for the time in the lesson we would come to a consideration of it. But notice again verse 36. While living, this statement was made about her. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds which she did. She may not have been a man. And in that ancient day, as you and I have often noted, men tended at least in many cases to look down upon women May I suggest she certainly made a grand usage of what opportunity she had. She was full, the text says, of good works. Maybe we could each pause and ask this question. What are you full of? What am I full of? Maybe you had a parent or a grandparent who, upon the realization that you and I were doing something foolish or doing something rather unwise, they might say, you're just full of no good. And they meant it well at that moment in assisting that you and I weren't acting very wisely. Isn't it amazing? She, Tabitha, was full of good works. The hallmark for which she was known, the discussion of what came to mind with regard to her centered around good works. You'll notice as we develop that point on the slide, may I suggest that is a rather great personal examination question for us. What are you and I known for? When she died, there was a rather impressive gathering of those who were able to show and exhibit first-hand evidence of what this person had done. When it comes my time to go, what are people going to think of I'm not concerned about whether or not they miss me so much or not. But as each of us think about what will they first think of when my name is mentioned? Good works? Selfishness? A person who had little interest in the, in the things of others? You see, you and I have all been there at a funeral home. And in light of a person, there is something almost immediately that almost always comes to mind relative to that person. What do you and I want to be known for? What do we want them to remember about us? Like Tabitha, do we want it to be known as a person of good works, full of it? And alms deeds which we have in fact assisted or at least touched the lives of other people in a memorable and good way. What are you and I going to be known for? There's several other points on that slide. Let's begin to look at them one by one. First of all, in verse number 39, it says, And all the widows stood by him weeping, and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made. 
Again, we don't know how old a lady Dorcas was, but it would seem at the very least she was capable of sewing and making clothing, but who did she give it to? She seemingly made it available to those who perhaps were least able to afford it and who likely were able to give her very little in return for it. And that's the very one she gave it to. Doesn't that highlight to us, it isn't the interest of simply behaving in such a way that others can pay us back in an equal amount to what we've given to them. It's our interest to illustrate and demonstrate and to show like she did our concern for the souls of individuals and to let them know that there's a God in heaven that loves them. Dorcas, you see, had made coats and garments apparently sufficient in number that there was quite a few widows there gathered, and they were showing them. Don't you find it interesting? Had they simply brought them to this place where her body was, or was it the fact they were wearing them? Could it be that this was the primary element in clothing that they enjoyed? Maybe another point could be made. Dorcas had brought forth such a memorable amount of fruit unto God. Again, though a woman she was, she had helped others in a very concrete and lasting way. What about you and me? A life of fruitfulness, does that characterize you and me? Are we bringing forth the fruit which God would have us to? That question is not only interesting, but it's also very telling. For the reasons that might be noted here, It is the Holy Spirit that makes us in a position to bring forth this fruit unto God. I've invited your consideration to several brief passages, whether it be in Isaiah 3 or even in these passages in the New Testament. When you and I bring forth fruit unto God, we are following in the steps which the Holy Spirit has directed us to follow. And those kind of steps will certainly lead into everlasting life. The apostles, as well as the Christians, as we close that slide, a constant reminder about the bringing forth fruit unto God. And so we could even be more specific. That fruit could certainly take many particulars. And given that God has provided us with a host of talents and abilities, and it varies from one person to the next, I'm not able to know exactly everything that you might do, and you can't know everything that I might be able to do. But the point that must be asked of each of us individually, am I using the skills, the capabilities that God has given me in the service of His kingdom? And if so, I will bring forth fruit unto God without doubt. But if I'm hiding that talent under a bushel, if I'm covering it up in the words of Matthew chapter 5, then I'm failing in regard to Matthew 5, 16. Let your light so shine before men. Is your light and mine shining brightly? Like Dorcas, are we full of good works? As we close that slide and draw near to the close of our lesson as well, this slide here is just a very brief rehearsal of some of what we've learned already this evening. God commands us to bear fruit to Him. If we're to please Him, that's not an option. And as we seek to do that, you and I thus must abide in the Lord and do so faithfully, using our skills and capabilities as He would have us to do it. 
Is it any wonder then that in Matthew 25, that five-talent man, the two-talent man, the one-talent man, all are described, and the two are so highly commended, the first two, because that five-talent man put to the task that which he'd been given, and he was so highly commended. And the same was true of the two-talent man. But the one-talent man, sadly, almost catastrophically, he took the one that he had and hid it. And he made a claim, I knew you're a hard man and you reap where you haven't sowed and therefore I hid the talent so I could give it back to you. And the master said to him, you wicked and slothful servant. At the very least you should have given it to the money changers that I might have mine own with interest. If you and I don't use those talents, God has said He'll take them from us and He'll give them to someone else and we'll be found lacking. Tonight, I hope each of us have been motivated using Dorcas to challenge ourselves to be fruitful, to do what we can with what we have in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. This concluding slide is one that just very quickly points out the fruitful life of Dorcas. Although she's only mentioned in just this little handful of verses, she has left an indelible imprint on the record of time. You and I may know a lot about not knowing near as much about the church in Joppa from the first century, but we know the name of one of her disciples, a woman named Dorcas. May we, in principle, be like her. Tonight, if there's anyone in this audience that's not a faithful servant of Jesus Christ, maybe at one time you were, but tonight, as of this moment, you know you're not. There's a group of people here that would be excited to pray on your behalf, to in fact urge you on in faithfulness. May I say that upon repentance and confession on your part, we'd be honored to pray to God for on your behalf, and He's promised to forgive you. This evening, as you do that, you could then exit this building, recharge and re-energize to be fruitful, much like Dorcas was. If we could help in any way tonight, whether it be in that attribute or whether it just be for prayers of encouragement or prayers of strength. We want you to know that we'd like to be here to assist and to help and to do it at once while together we stand and while we sing.